first thing to ask us in the church. And I pray that I'll get started this week than I did last week. You may or may not recall that I intended last week to get through the remainder of the chapter, and I think I got through one and a half verses, something like that. I hope maybe I'll be able to go a farther this evening. Probably review will not be necessary for most of you. Paul had been in prison in Caesarea Philippi for an excess of two years. He stood trial before two Roman governors, one by the name of Felix, the other by the name of Festus. On both occasions, he had been found innocent of every charge that the Sanhedrin Council of Jerusalem laid against him. However, because these Roman governors wanted to do something to favor the Jews, they left Paul in bondage. They left him in prison. At the end of two years, or a little bit beyond two years, King Agrippa, a Roman official, a Jewish by both education and religion, came from Rome to visit the newly appointed governor of Caesarea Philippi by the name of Festus. Now, I believe personally that he came not so much to meet Festus again, he probably knew him from prior acquaintance, but I think he came because he had heard of Paul and wanted to hear Paul preach. And after he had been there for a while, he asked that he might hear Paul, that he might have an occasion to meet this man that he had heard so much about. And so an appointment was arranged, great dignitaries of the Roman government located in Caesarea Philippi, centurions, leaders of the Roman army, Festus the governor, King Agrippa, his wife Bernice, were seated in the judgment hall and Paul was brought before them. Acts chapter 26 gives us the account of Paul's apologetic statement, that is, the declaration of his personal faith and ministry. Now just to bring you up to date, I'd like to read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 26 through verse 23. After everyone was seated, the proceedings were ready to get underway. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth a hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know you to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life... From my youth, which was at the first among my own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, that they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, under which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them off in every synagogue and compelled them to, to blaspheme been exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even under strange cities, whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. When we were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And it's hard for thee to kick against the prick. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God. They may receive forgiveness of sins, an inheritance among them who are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets of Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Now that brings us through the book 
of Paul's statement. He defined the beginning of his faith, what he was before he was a Christian, how God converted him by his own power, how he called him to preach the gospel, and how Paul, by the grace of God, had executed that commission. Now, verse 24, And as Paul thus spake for himself, Festus, remember he's the governor, the Roman governor, a Gentile by birth, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. Now remember that most of Paul's statement was directed not to Festus. He had already spoken to Festus. He had already declared his faith to Festus, and Festus, although he could not find any fault with him, refused to set him free. Now he was addressing himself not to Festus the governor, but to King Agrippa from Rome. Repeatedly, through this portion of scripture, you find him uh, referring to old king, or King Agrippa, and so on. He was very, very emphatic in the fact that he was not talking to Festus, he was talking to King Agrippa. However, Festus, having heard these strange things, now he, he didn't have any knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. He was a Gentile, probably born, reared, educated in Rome, and had no acquaintance with, with Israel, and with their religion, with their God, Jehovah. He had no acquaintance with Moses or the prophets. And when he heard these strange things that Paul talked about, the miraculous appearance of the resurrected, glorified Lord on the road to Damascus, preaching that Christ should suffer, die, and be raised from the dead, preaching the glorious doctrine of the resurrection, repentance toward God and worse meat for repentance. When Festus heard these things, his mind was so baffled that he cried out with a loud voice, which signifies not anger, but excitement. He was excited. Disturbed by what he heard, he stood to his feet and he cried out, Paul, thou art beside thyself. You're raving. You're mad. You're a lunatic. And this is the explanation he gave for his madness. Much learning doth make thee mad. That phrase, much learning, signifies many letters or much reading. Now note, even though Festus didn't know anything about the religion that Paul was talking about, he knew that Paul was an educated man. He could tell the man was trained. He knew what he was talking about. He didn't accuse him of being an idiot. He accused him of being a raving maniac because he studied the wrong things. Much learning, much reading, much study just make me mad. Now, most of last week I gave over to the discussion of why we ought to study today. Uh, it's not my purpose to cover that ground again, simply, except to say this. If you do study, even minimally, even what the bare minimum of what you want to study, people will call you mad. And if you believe the Word of God and exercise yourself in the truths of Scripture, you'd be surprised how many preachers and how many people who have been in church all their life will call you mad. Strange. I'll say it's pitiful. But the average man in the average church today knows very, very little of the Word of God. Very, very little. And if you simply discuss with them basic truths, like regeneration, the great theme of Whitfield's preaching was regeneration. Whitfield lived in a day in which men were much like they are today, ignorant of spiritual truths. Regeneration, you must be born again, is the very basis of the gospel, and yet, dear beloved, most people know nothing of the new birth. They know nothing of regeneration. Or they've been taught as some decisional regeneration. that you make a decision and thus you're regenerated. That's a lie. Regeneration is a sovereign act of the Spirit of God. And without it, men perish in their sins and go to a double cell. And yet most men know nothing of that. And for that reason, there's no anxiety when they hear the gospel. There's no crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because they think that God will have mercy on them anytime they want mercy. Anytime they feel disposed to avail themselves of the provision that God has made, they can be saved. In other words, they can save themselves. They know nothing of the sovereign work of the Spirit of God in wakening dead sinners out of spiritual death. A very basic truth. And yet, knowing not, listen to me, dear beloved, we have so much truth that the world needs that it's inexcusable for us to be silent. Not long ago, I read a book. Book written by a man who used to be, I don't know if he still is or not, personal chaplain to Queen Elizabeth. Book is entitled Our Guilty Silence. Now, I don't agree with everything he said, but I'll tell you one thing, I sure agree with the title. Our Guilty Silence. Dear beloved, we have so much that the world doesn't know. The church members don't know. 
And I tell you what, I believe it's our responsibility under God's dispensation of grace to give out the truth that we know. You may take for granted that people do know what it means to be born again, but I tell you they don't. You may take for granted that everybody in every church around here believes in the resurrection, but I tell you they don't. You may think that everybody, every, every child going to Sunday school knows what Jesus Christ died to do. That his death was substitutionary for sinners, and I tell you that most people don't believe in the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. We're living in a day of ignorance. And if we study and if we expose men to the bare minimum of truth, dearly beloved, they'll call you a raving maniac just like they call Paul. Now in verse 25, Paul said, Oh, I'm not, bad. I'm not mad, most noble festival, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. You know, there's one thing you find about Paul. After two years of prison, after being accused of everything under the sun, after being hated and ridiculed, it was very hard to disturb Paul. Very hard to make him mad. Not very, not very difficult for my feathers to get ruffled sometimes. Particularly when I read that people are attacking the truth that I hold dear. Well, I'll be very honest with you. Sometimes it infuriates me. But I find that Paul kept his, as the saying goes, kept his cool pretty well. He said, he said, oh, most noble pastor, these words aren't foolishness, as you suppose. These words are truth and soberness. And the thing I, that impresses me most is that after all Paul had been through, and every time he preached the gospel, the masses said, you're a fool for believing that. Very few people ever believed what he preached. After being in prison and beaten, and scorned and ridiculed. Yet we see here in verse 25 a quiet confidence that Paul had that everything he believed and preached was absolutely true. And though the governor of the Roman Empire or the governor of Palestine should make accusations against Paul, he simply shook his head and said, No, no, most noble sir. The words that I speak, they're true. Oh, I want you to know they're true. And dear beloved, I would have you to understand that the words that I'm preaching to you this evening are true. They may appear to be foolishness to you, and they may be incomprehensible. Indeed, they are. But dear beloved, I tell you, they're true. And because they are true, they deserve to be propagated. They deserve to be sounded forth. If for no other reason than because they are true. Now, in verses 26 through 29, Paul gets back to the business at hand. Verse 26, Paul does something very subtle. He says, For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak food. Do you see what he's doing? Who was he speaking to to begin with? He was speaking to King Agrippa. Festus interrupted. Now he gets, in a very, very subtle way, he gets the attention back to King Agrippa. After Festus had so in had been so discourteous in his interruption, Paul generally moves the attention back from Festus back over to King Agrippa. And he says, the king knoweth these things. He says, in a sense, he says, you may be an ignorant Gentile, but <laughs> King Agrippa isn't. He knoweth these things. He knows about Moses and the prophets. He knows about the resurrection of the Messiah. He knows these things, before whom also I speak freely. The word freely means plainly. But it also signifies the boldness with which Paul spoke. I see three things in verses 25 and 26 that we ought to implement in our evangelism. First of all, Paul was courteous. He was courteous to Festus, even though Festus was discourteous to him. He called him most noble Festus. Though Festus became excited, Paul did not. He was courteous. But in the midst of his courtesy, he did not compromise the truth. If you would think a man would ever compromise, it, was, it would be when a man was in the situation Paul was in. Dignitaries, kings, governors, princes, rulers, armies. He said, I speak freely. Signifying, first of all, I speak plainly. But also, I speak boldly. Dear beloved, always remember this. You never do anyone any good by camouflaging or comp compromising the truth. Now, Satan will, Satan will come to you with tones like this. If you tell a man plainly what he needs to know, you're offended. 
You better not give him exactly what is true. You better find a, a more subtle, a, a more convenient, a more acceptable manner of speech. Dear beloved, you must understand that you do a man's soul no good by withholding vinyl truth for fear of offending. It's the truth, not your courtesy and kindness, dear beloved, that God has promised to you. You may be so sweet that you drip a punny, but God won't use that. He uses the truth. I know many times that I've talked with people, Satan has sent a fiery dart into my mind. You better not say that. You'll never, you'll never have a chance to talk to him again. You better not say that. You're offended. You better not say that. He'll hate you. But all Satan was trying to get me to do is keep from telling the man the truth. And the truth is the only thing that can set a sinner free. Don't hold back the truth. Always remember this, dear beloved. It won't make any difference in hell whether the man likes you or not. But it may make a great deal of difference whether you ever told him the truth. Paul spoke freely and boldly. He said, For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, King Agrippa, for this thing was not done in secret. Now Paul was saying, first of all, I am confident that Agrippa knows the prophecies regarding the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah. I'm confident he knows these things. Secondly, I'm confident that he, being a Jew, had heard about Jesus of Nazareth, and he had heard about his crucifixion, and that he had heard about the supposed resurrection. Now I say supposed, not because it was a fable, it was true, but the Jews did not accept it as being true. As far as they were, as the average man in the street was concerned in Israel, it was only a fable. It was a rumor. And yet, remember that King Agrippa, though he lived in Rome, was a Jew. And being a Jew, no doubt he kept abreast of all the events taking place in Palestine. Now, we're studying John's Gospel Tuesday evening. One thing I hope you're getting out of that is that everywhere Jesus Christ went, he was the focal point of everybody's attention. When he attended the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, everybody was talking about Jesus. Right? And though the multitudes did not believe a word that he said, he was the focal point of all attention. Now, Paul says, I am persuaded that you, King Agrippa, know about these things. After all, they were not done in a corner, which is to say they were not done in secret. I'm convinced that you know now, in verse 27, Paul expresses his confidence in Agrippa's knowledge of the Old Testament. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophet? Now, what did he mean by that? Well, I believe what Paul was saying is this. Do you believe that the prophets or writers of the Old Testament were inspired of God so that what they wrote was indeed the very word of God, the mind of God? That's the question. Now, this may sound like a strange place to begin witnessing to people, but dearly beloved, that's a good place to begin. Do you believe that this is the Word of God? That men who spoke were inspired by the Spirit of God? The word in Timothy is Theotmustos, God-breathed. Do you believe that this book is God-breathed? And then before Agrippa had a chance to answer, Paul answered for him, I know that thou believest. Now, what he was saying is, Agrippa, I know that you believe that the Old Testament is indeed the Word of God. Let me give you a little truth here. If you ever are trying to talk to a man who doesn't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, you have no basis of reference. No basis. And I'll be honest with you, I believe it's an impossibility to witness to a man who rejects the authority of the Word of God. Now, you may, most of the people you talk to don't know whether it's the Word of God or not. But when you meet a man who absolutely refuses to accept the authority of Scripture, then you have no basis upon which to talk. How are you going to prove the gospel from creation? You can prove that God exists, but you can't prove the gospel from creation. The Word of God, dear beloved, is an absolute necessity. Paul said, Agrippa, do you believe that the Old Testament is the Word of God? I know that you believe. Now, do you see what Paul was doing? He was hedging him in very cunningly. He said, do you believe this is the Word of God? Yes. And then he was going to take it, no doubt, back to the Old Testament prophets and Moses and prove from passages such as Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 that Jesus Christ was everything he claimed to be. But before he had a chance, Paul, uh, Paul heard these words from Agrippa. Now, whatever else you knew about Acts chapter 26, I'm sure you knew verse 28. 
Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. As I said, whatever else you knew about Acts 26, I'm sure you had heard verse 28. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. What in the world did he mean by that? Well, I'm going to discuss that a little further in a few moments. I'd like to skip it for right now, if I may. Skip verse 29 too, and go on to verse 30. When Paul had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor, and Bernice, and they that sat with him. And when they were gone aside, they talked bet between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Now, after they heard Paul's testimony, they dismissed themselves, they went off in a private chamber, and they began to discuss the man by the name of Paul. And they were of all, all of one mind. This man has done nothing worthy of death. He's done nothing worthy of imprisonment. And then Agrippa said, if he had not appealed unto Caesar, he might have been set free. Now the question that comes to my mind is this. Did Paul make a mistake when he, appear, when he appealed unto Caesar? Remember in Acts chapter 25, Festus wanted him to go back to Jerusalem and stand trial there again. And on that occasion, Paul said, I appeal unto Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he had that right. Now the question is, did he do the wrong thing? Agrippa said if he had not, he would have been set free. Did Paul make a mistake? I suggest to you he did not. Now if he had, if he had not appealed unto Caesar, he might have been set free. But I want to give you a few thoughts about his imprisonment. His imprisonment kept him from the murderous Jews. They had parted his death on two separate occasions. If he had been a free man, they would have put forth every attempt to put him to death. So his imprisonment meant that he was guarded by the Roman army. The Jews couldn't touch him. His imprisonment gave him additional time for study and writing. But by appealing to Caesar, Paul set forth the motions and the machinery for him to be transported to Rome, and that was the place for which he longed to go. Paul, read the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wanted to go to Rome. And by appealing to Caesar, all the machinery necessary for his transportation to Rome was cared for by the Roman government. No, Paul did not make a mistake. Because he was led by the Spirit of God in appealing to Caesar, and God's providence always knows what's best. Now, in chapter 27 and 28, we will study the account of Paul's journey to Rome and the early months of his stay in Rome. Now, let's go back to verse 28 of chapter 26. These are the verses that are probably the most familiar, as I said, and probably some of the most controversial verses in the Word of God. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now, what does that mean? Well, the popular interpretation of that is this. Paul, I almost made a decision. Boy, I, I almost gave my heart to Christ, but <clears throat> I don't think I'll do it now. And the interpretation given most popularly to this verse is this. God was doing everything he could to save Agrippa, but Agrippa wouldn't let him. He came right to the door of salvation, you know, just, just right there. But he made up his mind against God, he went the other way, and he was lost. And the application is made, dear sinner, God is doing everything he can to save you, but if you won't let him, there's nothing more he can do. Now that's a popular interpretation of this. But dear beloved, I would like to show you this evening that that is a complete falsehood. And it's not accurate at all. And there's no biblical basis for any such mentality as that. What I've just given you is the is a basic view of the Arminian interpretation of Acts 26-28. Now, I'd like to give it to you in more detail, if I might. Two things I would like to do in the time we have remaining. I would like to give you a statement of the Arminian doctrine that's given or stated from Acts 26-28, and then I would like to point out the fallacies in such reasoning. Now, I hope you'll take notes, because if you do very much discussing with people about the doctrines of grace, you're going to run into this verse if you haven't already. Agrippa said to Paul, almost I persuaded me to be a Christian. Now, 
The Arminian begins by saying this. This is the Arminian interpretation. First of all, that Agrippa confessed to conviction by the Holy Spirit. When he said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian, he was saying that he felt the drawing influence of the Spirit of God upon his will. That he felt the Spirit of God drawing him to Christ. He is saying that he was faced with an opportunity to avail himself of God's provision for salvation. That the Spirit of God made clear to him the way of salvation. And he had the opportunity. And he felt the drawing power of the Spirit. However, the Arminian goes on to say that Agrippa refused the drawing power of the Holy Spirit, and for that reason he was lost. He finally pardoned himself, and thus closed the door of his heart against the Spirit and against Christ. The Arminian would have you believe that the word almost signifies that he was on the verge of salvation, but he withdrew. Now, the Arminian won't tell you this, because he won't admit it. But if you follow, follow this reasoning to its ultimate conclusion, you come up with this. In spite of everything God could do, God was doing everything he could, Agrippa remained lost. Though God wanted to save him, he could not, because Agrippa would not let him. Now, that's the Arminian interpretation. And I don't think I've done any any injustice to the Armenian cause by what I just stated. And the reason I know it so well is because I used to be an Armenian and I used to preach it. Now, I want to ask you something. Is it true? Is that interpretation accurate? Is that what really happened? And if it is not, how would you prove that it is not? What errors can you find in that reasoning? Well, I'd like to give you some. Flaws in the Arminian interpretation. First of all, and this is most basic, there's a failure to properly interpret the text. Now, if I might get into a little technical detail with you. The word almost in the Greek is a phrase in oligo. Two Greek words. In oligo or in a little, in a little. Now that's a little uh, interpretation of it, in a little. To a slight degree is another meaning, to a slight degree, or possibly in a few words. So the word that's translated almost means a little bit, or to a slight degree. Now, I believe that there are two possible interpretations of this. One of the more popular interpretations is that Agrippa was being ironical in what he was saying. And he was saying, in so few words you attempt to make me a Christian. In so few words you attempt to make me a Christian. In other words, he was laughing at Paul. He said, Paul, you've given me this one brief statement of your faith, and you hope to make me a Christian. Let me show you how this, this same phrase is translated almost, is translated in another portion of the Word of God, lest you think that I'm trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3. Ephesians 3, 3. Now, I've often said this, and I mean it. Don't ever believe anything I say unless I can back it up by Scripture. But I would be much obliged if you had used the same text with other people. Don't believe what they say unless they can back it up by Scripture. Now, Ephesians 3, 3, listen to this. How that by revelation, he made most in Acts 26, 28. Exactly the same Greek phrase. Now, in Ephesians 3, 3, it's translated in few words. Use that translation here. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, In few words thou persuadest me to be a Christian. He was laughing at it. He said, Just like that, you think you can make me a Christian. Now that may be the interpretation. Or it may be that Agrippa was saying, To a slight degree, you have convinced me that you're right. In the slightest degree, you have convinced me. The word 
to be is actually the word to make or act. In a, in a slight degree, thou persuadest me to act a Christian. Now, I used to think that maybe Agrippa was a saved man. I don't think so anymore. I think he was lost. And personally, I believe that what he meant by this was Paul, just a little bit, to a slight degree, I see what you're saying. And the slightest degree, I'm inclined to agree with you. But dear beloved, whatever it means, it does not mean that he was on the verge of being saved. Now, whichever of those interpretations you take, either he was saying satirically, in such a few words you attempt to make me a Christian, or he was saying to a, to a slight degree, I see what you're saying. With a little bit, I understand it. Now, the second argument. And the verse that you never hear read in verse 28 is verse 29. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost, and the word almost there is the same word that's translated almost in verse 28, that were both to a little bit, and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. Now, if Agrippa had been just on the verge of being a Christian, as the Armenians say, if he was just about to make a decision, what do you think Paul would have done? If verse 28 means that he was on the verge of accepting Christ and opening up his heart and everything else the Armenians say, does it not seem reasonable that Paul would have made some effort to bring him over? That Paul would have said, now come on, Agrippa, you're almost there, you know. Let's sing another verse of Just As I Am or something like that. Now, of course, I'm being satirical. But if the Armenian is right, if salvation is nothing more than persuading a man to make a decision, and Agrippa had almost made that decision, does it not seem reasonable that Paul would have done something to bring him the rest of the way? But what Paul said was this. When it says, I would to God, he was saying, I would make this prayer to God. That not only you, but everybody here, was to a little degree and all together, Holy as I am, except for these bonds. Paul was saying, I would to God that everybody in the sound of my voice love the Lord Jesus Christ as I do. That every one of you had found salvation in him, cleansed by his blood, called by the Spirit of God. I would that you were even as I. But instead of pleading with you, I'll plead with God. I make this prayer to God. Instead of pleading with Agrippa, he prayed with his heavenly Father. You see? Because Paul knew that Agrippa was helpless in the salvation of his own soul, that he would say, God must do it. So instead of pleading with him, he prayed with God. But do not forget, he preached the gospel to him too. He preached the gospel to him, and then he left the decision in the hands of God. He went from Agrippa to God. He preached the gospel to Agrippa, and he fell on his face before God and made intercession for him. Dear beloved, that's witnessing. So the first failure of the Armenian is to rightly interpret the, the verse. All you have to do is interpret it honestly, and you'll see that he was not on the verge of being saved. The second failure of the Armenian is to rightly understand man's sinfulness. He fails to understand man's wickedness, his condition before God. Now, there are three things that you must never forget about lost men. Now, you could put them all under one head, but I've broken them down into three different parts because I want you to remember it. And most of you already know this, but you may have forgotten. And I want you, whatever else you forget, don't forget this. First of all, man is spiritually dead. The first thing you must never forget about a lost man is that he's dead. Therefore, it's by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death hath passed upon all men for all sin. And I don't believe that's primarily talking about physical death. I believe it's primarily talking of spiritual death. And you have been quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 5, 12, and Ephesians 2, 1. Men are dead. They cannot comprehend spiritual truth, for the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness unto them. Neither can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. And men, in their lost state, are spiritually dead, cut off from God, alienated from the life that is in God. The second thing that you must never forget about lost men is that they are totally depraved. Totally depraved. Now, obviously, I could spend hours talking about total depravity, but I take you to one verse that you know quite well, 
And yet I want you to turn there again. It's Jeremiah 17, 9. No doubt most of you can quote it. But I want you to look at it again. Some time ago, I defined to you, I broke down man's soul. Do you remember what I told you? If I, if this were a classroom and I called you by name and asked you to stand at your feet, what description would you give me of the soul of man? Well, let me give it to you again. And please don't forget it. Try to grasp it. The soul is comprised of three faculties. Three faculties. The intellect, the emotion, and the volition. The mind, the emotion, and the will. Three faculties that really make up your soul. That's what you really are. You have a mind, you have an emotional system, you feel love, you feel hate, you feel fear, you feel panic, you feel excitement, you feel enthusiasm, you feel deadness, melancholy, all of these things come in within the circumference of your emotional system. So you have a mind and pulse. You have emotional feelings. And then you have a volition will. Now these are three aspects of your soul. What your soul is is an intellect, emotion, and volition. That's your soul. You don't understand that, you can't possibly understand a soul man. Now, these faculties are governed by a disposition. Your soul is governed by a disposition, or the faculties of your soul are governed by a disposition. Now, the Bible calls the disposition of the faculties of the soul your heart. Your heart. The heart is the disposition that controls the faculties of the soul. Okay, did you get that? In other words, you, in the essence of your being, you're not flesh and bones. You know that. Yesterday I attended a funeral, Mrs. McAllister's brother. And I'm sure it was comfort to her and her family to know that that wasn't her brother laying there. That was his body, but that wasn't him. We're more than the body. We're soul. Intelligence, emotions, will. That's a soul, dear beloved. That's what you are. But your faculties, your mind, your emotions, your will, it's governed by your heart. Now, what does God say about the heart? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God says that the thing that governs your mind, your feelings, and your will is desperately corrupted. The disposition of your soul is ruined, depraved, defiled. Now, if that be true, then that means that everything your mind thinks will be governed by a wicked heart. And everything your emotions feel will be governed by a wicked disposition. And every decision your will makes will be governed by a wicked disposition. Do you see what I'm saying? Sin has corrupted not only the disposition of your soul, but every faculty of your soul through your heart. Jesus Christ said, out of the heart proceeds all manner of wickedness. Out of the heart, out of the disposition of your soul comes forth sin. So, when we say that a man is totally depraved, it means that every faculty plus the disposition of his soul has been ruined by sin. Does man have a mind? Yes. Does he have a will? Yes. Does he have emotions? Yes. No, no Calvinist denies the existence of a man's will. It's that the disposition of the soul, the heart, is wicked, incurably wicked. It's so wicked that God has to take it out and give you a new one. A new heart will I give you, God says. He can't just wash it. He has to change it. And until a man receives a new heart, he's incurably wicked. Now, he may appear all right. His wife may think he's the most darling man that ever lived, and his children may love him to death. But in the sight of God, he's wicked, defiled, corrupt. So is a gripper. Totally depraved. Thirdly, as a lost man, he had no spiritual ability. Now, this is the result of being dead, and it's the result of being totally depraved. He couldn't do anything in the spiritual realm. He was helpless before God. Romans 8, 7 and 8. Now, you've read these verses many times, but you have to get them in relation to the truth that they teach. Romans 8, 7 and 8. So, or because the carnal mind, now the mind is one faculty of the will, the intellect, because the carnal intellect, mind, is enmity, it's at war against God. 
For it is not subject, it is not under subjection, it is not obedient to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh can do absolutely nothing that satisfies God. Can a lost man make a decision? Yes. Can a lost man please God? No. Help us before God. No man can come to me except the Father draw him. Now there are those who call that a hair-splitting forest. But dear beloved, I didn't say that. Jesus Christ said it. And you better be careful what you call the words of Christ. Christ said, no man could come to me. The word can is the word dunamai in the Greek. It means no man has the ability to come. Now you may not like that tonight, but dear beloved, I didn't say it. God did. Christ said, no man possesses the natural native ability to come to me except the Father who sent me draw him. You cannot. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says that the God of this world hath blinded their eyes. Bless the gospel shine to them. So men are dead, totally depraved, and they have no ability to please God. But the Arminian fails to take this under account. He fails to consider this. Because if he really believed what the Scripture said, you would see that, Ar- that Agrippa had not the ability to be almost persuaded. The third error of the Arminians. They fail to understand the work of the Spirit of God. They suggest that the Spirit of God was drawing him, but they will tell you the Spirit of God doesn't draw a man but so far, and then the man has to do the rest. Well, dear beloved, that just isn't so. First of all, when the Spirit of God calls a man, he gives him life, because his greatest need is life. He's dead. And when the Spirit of God calls, he doesn't, he doesn't try to lure men. He doesn't try to entice men. He comes to them while they are dead, as corpses under the sight of God, and he injects into their soul the very life of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born. They were born before they received, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of the Spirit of God, and thus they received Jesus Christ. So the Spirit's call first gives life. Secondly, the Spirit's call, dearly beloved, is an absolute necessity to salvation. First Corinthians 12, 3, no man calleth Jesus Lord but by the Spirit. No man calleth Jesus Lord but by the Spirit. Jesus Christ said in 6, John 6, 44 and 45, No man can come to me, except the Father who sent me draw him. And everyone who is taught of the Spirit of the Father cometh to me. Everyone who is taught. Everyone who has heard of the Father cometh to me. No if and robot. If the Father teaches a man, he comes. And he teaches by the Spirit. Thirdly, the Spirit's call is always effectual. Romans 8, 30. More than whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. More whom he did predestinate, them he also, what, called? And whom he called, the same people he called, he justified. Every one of them. He didn't lose a one. And those that are called are justified, and those that are justified are glorified. John six thirty seven. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Many other verses. 2 Peter 1 3, that's a good one. Look that up, study it. 2 Peter 1 3. But I think the most emphatic is Philippians 1 6. Being confident of this very thing, he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. Philippians 2 13, for it is God who worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Dear beloved, you can't be any clearer than that. Thus, if the Spirit of God had been doing the work in Agrippa's heart, he would not have been almost persuaded. He would have been altogether persuaded. But the Arminian failed to consider that. The fourth and final failure of the Arminian, and this is something I'm afraid we don't take under consideration, and that is the general influence of the Word of God when it's preached. I believe that the Word of God can have an effect upon a man and his lost estate, even though the Spirit of God may not be doing anything. 
And the reason I say that is because man has a conscience. He has a conscience. He has the law of God written on the ta tables of his heart. And when he gives the gospel preached, he may be pricked in his conscience. His fear of hell and death may be stirred. And he may be even brought to make a decision without the Spirit of God doing the thing. Simply the general influence of the power of the Word of God falling upon his conscience. He's pricked, he's stirred. He responds, he makes a decision. But dear beloved, there's one thing that the conscience of man cannot do. It cannot lead him to persevere. And though he be stirred to make a decision, he will not be brought to perseverance. And never forget this. Only he that endureth to the end shall be saved. You may start out well, dear beloved. You may even live 60 years as a Christian and in your 61st year fall into sin and prove by falling into sin that your conversion was not real, not genuine. Now, I'm not saying you can be saved and then lost. I'm saying you can be deceived. Now, don't get me wrong. No man would ever persevere for 60 years in a false profession. You see, dear beloved, the basic error of Arminianism now, this isn't very profound, but I believe it's accurate. The basic error of Arminianism is to attribute too much power to man and too little power to God. The Arminian believes that man can do more than he can do because the man can't do anything. And the Arminian believes that there are some things God can't do. The good of the God does it all. Now, what did a good mean when he said, almost, I was afraid it's made to be a Christian? I personally believe he was saying, Paul, I'm beginning, I, I sure will do what you're saying. It, it, it makes some sense to me. That doesn't mean the Spirit of God is doing a thing in his heart. After all, little beloved, what kind of a God is it that wants to save and can't? What kind of a God is it that he exerts all this power in trying to save a man, and finally he's defeated because the man won't let him? Not my God. Not the God of the Bible. He went into a mountain and he called to him whom he would, and they came. The Bible says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will no wise cast out. Praise God for effectual calling. Because there was a time when I did not heed the call of God in the gospel. And I heard the gospel preached and it made no sense to me. It was foolishness to me. But then there was a day when miraculously, by the grace of God, life was brought into my soul, and the light of the gospel dawned for the first time. And a whole new world opened up, and I saw myself as God saw me lost. A rebel against God. And by the leadership of the Spirit of God, I was brought to see that Jesus Christ was the only hope of my soul, and by His grace, I believed, turned from my sin, and cast myself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. And from that time unto this, and throughout eternity, I shall forever be justified by his grace, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. Shall we stand to thank? Father, Indeed, it is a comfort to know that thou dost possess the power to bring a man out of death to life, out of bondage into liberty, out of a state of inability into a state of freedom and grace and strength. And Father, even as thou dost deliver Jonah from the belly of the whale when there was nothing he could do for himself, even so, by thy grace, thou hast delivered us from the bonds of iniquity and from the gall of bitterness, and we praise thy name for it tonight. Indeed, our salvation is all grace. Thou hast done it all. And this evening, in our feeble way, we would give to thee all the glory. And we would ask that thou would set that same power upon us to make us effectual witnesses that we will not be ashamed of the gospel, that we will not shun to declare the whole counsel of God, but that we might go forth as flaming evangelists, bearing the gospel of God's grace, that a Savior has come, and that his name is Jesus Christ, 
and that whosoever cometh to him by faith, he will in no wise cast out. Now, Father, we pray thy richest benediction to be upon each individual, each home. And may our lives and everything we do be well pleasing in thy sight. To the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. God bless you. Good night. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.